You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. My administration has accomplished more than most any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. I am Roy Full Brown, and this is Mid Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's what I keep saying, and that's actually what the ether of the show actually is. But at least since the end of February, we've really broadened our remit. We really do now talk about geopolitics from around the world, which, dare I say, it, is something which is incredibly close to my heart. And with us today to discuss the surprising uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. We have with us journalist Chuck Holton. Chuck, how are you today, sir? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. First off, give us your credentials, Chuck. How long have you been a war correspondent and what did you even do before that? I've been doing crisis reporting since 2003, so just about 20 years now, almost. And before that, was a stockbroker for 10 years in Washington, D.C. Got real tired of sitting behind a desk. And then was in the military for eight years in special operations in the Rangers. If you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, that was my unit. And so, so those different disparate jobs I had coming into being becoming a journalist and a writer sort of, I think, prepared me to do conflict reporting. It gave me not only the inclination, but the wherewithal to do it. And that's kind of how I got into it. So I know we've had you on the, on the show before, once if not twice before, but just re- reprise us of the tours that you've actually done, reporting tours that you've actually done in Ukraine, and then we'll get incredibly up to date with the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which started about five days ago. Uh, I actually, my first trip to Ukraine was in 2007, doing uh, book research for a novel that I wrote, strangely enough, about um, biolabs in, <laughs> in Ukraine, and it was pure fiction. And then I went back in 2014 as a journalist to cover the Maidan Square massacre and was, was there and went to Chernobyl the, for the second time, I guess, that, that trip. And then, of course, was there to cover this war actually three weeks before the war started. 
So I arrived in Ukraine this year on February 7th and was there. I've been there for four of the last six months. And so I've been all over the country from north to south. almost no place in the country that I haven't been at this point. And I I came home for the birth of a grandchild in the end of this month and then we'll probably go back and plan to stay this time other than short trips home for Christmas and a couple of speeches and stuff I have to give. I'll probably stay through at least the one-year anniversary of the war. Moscow has abandoned one of its main bastions in northeastern Ukraine after the Ukrainian forces made rapid advances. Russia's defense ministry said on Saturday that it was pulling troops out of its main stronghold in northeastern Ukraine, a sudden collapse of one of the war's principal front lines after Ukrainian forces encircled the area in a surprise advance. Video posted on social media showed Ukrainian troops driving past a tank bearing the Russian pro-war Z symbol in the city of Kupiansk. Shortly after capturing the single railway hub, that left thousands of Russian troops abruptly cut off from supplies. A separate social media video showed Ukrainian military at the entrance of Izium after Moscow abandoned the city. The swift fall of Izium is Moscow's worst defeat since its troops were forced back from the capital, Kyiv, in March. It could prove to be a decisive turning point in the six-month war, with thousands of Russian soldiers apparently abandoning their ammunition stockpiles and equipment. Ukrainian forces report recapturing dozens of towns and villages held by Russia for months since bursting through the front line just days ago. Video just released by Ukraine's Ministry of Defense showed troops raising the country's blue and yellow flag in Balaklia from where Russian forces recently fled. Okay, so let's go back to five days post-Chuck. What exactly was the situation in eastern and southern Ukraine? Okay, so for the month of August, I was there, and it was essentially a stalemate. The The Russians managed to capture something like about two kilometers of front line in the six weeks before this counteroffensive began. And there were other places where they lost a little ground, so just to net, it was basically a stalemate. Now, I went down to visit the front lines in a place called Pisky, just sort of south east of Dnipro just before I came back, so right around the end of the month. And what we found was near constant shelling, actual shelling. And I want to be very clear because this is something that journalists have failed to do in the entirety of this war, and that is be precise about their language when they talk about what what is happening on the ground. And it leads to some real misunderstandings about what's happening. So when I say shelling, I mean ar- artillery. That That is, you know, mortars and, and artillery that are fairly short range, maybe up to about 10 to maximum 30 kilometers from the actual line of contact. So there have been lots of places that have been struck by rocket fire. Now, rockets are usually between 30 and 70 kilometers. Those are the grad missile systems and those sorts of things. And then there is the the actual longer range missiles that Russia has employed to conduct rocket attacks on cities all over Ukraine. And there's no place in Ukraine that's safe from those. But, but fortunately for Ukraine, Russia doesn't have very many of those left. 
they we saw that they were about midsummer stopping they, they they quit using precision guided missiles because they were running out of them and they what started switching over to inertial guided missiles which are essentially ICBMs made to carry nuclear you know warheads and they were putting them putting conventional warheads on them and sending them into places that they they nearly always hit civilian areas because they just can't aim very well with a four and a half ton missile like that that doesn't have GPS guidance. So when I say shelling down along the front lines, there was actual artillery and they have a near limitless supply of that. So it was just constant. I have recordings of it where it's just it just sounds like rolling thunder all the time. Boom, 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 boom. And that was essentially how the Russians were keeping the Ukrainians back or or trying to advance. They would pound a place into powder and then they would try to move forward. But as soon as they stopped with the artillery barrages, then the Ukrainians would put these little drones up and go find where the Russian concentrations of troops were and start you know, one round would take out a whole bunch of Russian troops or a, a Russian tank or anything like that. Both sides were essentially reduced to using their tanks as artillery pieces and not as mobile, you know, gun platforms. So they would dig them into a big hole and use them for indirect fire, defilade fire. Now, so so we went down there to deliver. I, I, I embedded with a Ukrainian military unit that went to deliver a bunch of drones and Starlink internet receivers that had been donated by private parties, not not by governments, not not U.S. military or anything like that. And those things are being used to great effect. As a matter of fact, I, I would estimate that their combat power, if you could measure that, would be roughly the same as a four and a half million dollar tank because of the precision with which they're they allowed the Ukrainians to operate. So the Ukrainians were being outgunned down there about 50 to one. So about 50 rounds for every one round they shot back. But the one round that the Ukrainians shot back almost always hit its target where the Russians were just sort of aiming in the direction of Ukraine and hoping to hit anything. That, Chuck, I'm just, could, could, could you just, just jump in, just ask a quick question. So is that fundamentally where, I'm going to jump ahead slightly, but then we're going to come all the way back. Is that fundamentally where the Russians are actually losing this war is because they rely a lot on dumb artillery, dumb weaponry, whereby these new HIMARS that the Ukrainians have got from the West, from the Americans in in particular, are so much more precise. So they can take out these bridges which stop Russian logistics and reinforcements coming into various positions. Is that fundamentally the, the difference between the two sides apart from let's say morale one side the ukrainians are defending their their own country so they have a higher morale whereas the russians are kind of conscripts would it actually be the quality well, of material well no actually surprisingly that and i have i haven't even gotten to talking about the long-range weaponry that Ukraine has yet. I'm just talking about the actual frontline fighting that's going on, rather than being warfare where it's trench to trench and machine guns shooting at each other on a consistent basis. 
it's almost all heavy artillery and it's 50 or 100 rounds from the Russians coming toward the Ukrainians and then one round or two rounds from the Ukrainians going back toward the Russians. The de destructive effect is obviously much greater from the Russian side coming, coming into Ukraine, but the strategic or tactical effect is probably about one-to-one, -one, and that's why you've not seen much gains up until the last few days uh, on either side, is that even though Russia is shooting 100 rounds or 50 rounds for every round that Ukraine fires, that their tactical you know, combat power is about the same. And so it, the, the difference, actually the, the quantity that Russia is using to bomb the, the Ukrainians is about the only thing they have going for them. The, I, I forget who it was that, I think it was Stalin, that said quantity has a quality all its own. And, and so that's the only thing that's allowed them to make much in the way of any gains over the last, couple, you know, maybe basically since April. But these HIMARS have been a game changer, not on the front lines, so, so to speak, but because they can fire much farther away and strike much deeper behind enemy lines and can do so from a safe vantage point, from a, po a point where Russian artillery cannot reach them. And Russian precision fires don't have the precision they don't have a lot of precision fires left, but their precision fires are not precise enough to hit one artillery, you know, HIMARS unit or anything like that. That's, let's say, 110 or 120 kilometers behind the line of contact. And so that that's the advantage that the Ukrainians have been pressing in what they call shaping operations, getting ready for this counteroffensive. So they've been bombing supply depots and, and logistics hubs and things like that back in the rear, which have cut off the resupply. So it doesn't matter if Russia has 20,000 troops on the western side of the Dnieper River down in Kherson, if they can't resupply those troops. And that's the situation that they find themselves in now, which is why Ukraine... So Ukraine has been very smart about this. Their, their generals have been receiving a lot of advice and information signals intelligence from the u.s military generals and they've been making very good use of those high mars in that they've been put taking out russia's ability to resupply its troops they're taking out their tail and not their teeth well, if you if you cut the tail of the of the beast, then you don't have to worry about the teeth so much because the teeth will, will you know they're they're expendable, and that's what we're seeing now. So they also, in so doing, in those shaping operations, forced Russia to start moving more troops down to the south to try to counter the expected counterattack that was going to come in the Kherson region, and then the, the Ukrainians. We we saw this when we were in Kharkiv. We saw a whole bunch of Ukrainian armor moving towards the front line in Kharkiv. And we're like, wait a minute, that stuff is supposed to be moving south, not north. What are they doing? You know, and of course, we didn't report on that because you don't want to tell Russia anything they don't need to know. But but you could see that happening. You could see them actually preparing this counteroffensive weeks in advance. But on that counteroffensive, right, what, what I thought was peculiar is that the Ukrainians completely telegraphed that they were going to have this big offensive in the south, and one one of the one of the golden rules of a of a 
of warfare is you don't tell your opponents actually what you're going to do. We now know that the Ukrainians are adept in actually public propaganda and, and they've won the propaganda war in this war full stop re- regardless of the rights and the wrongs of, of each side in terms of just getting their message out but then also they've used that actually to do a bait and switch with the russians haven't they so mm-hmm. they said we're gonna have this uh, this massive uh, offensive in the south which made sense Kherson is the largest city that the russians have actually uh, captured since uh, the war started and we know there is uh, this ticking uh, calendar which is happening, which is things will slow down in the winter because that's just what happens in war. So it makes sense for the, for the Ukrainians to attack in the south, but they didn't really make too much forward motion there when actually what they were doing was planning to attack up around Kharkiv up in the north when everybody's looking down south the world's media and then this massive advance with weakened russian lines because the russians have actually moved some of their troops down to the south so that's what happened but let's go back down to Kherson and let's uh, let's do the south because i know you reported from mikolaev which is the next big town along from there and i remember the last time you were on that you said that you went to the point which was the the furthest russian tank advance and it was marked marked on the ground can you give us a sense of what the topography is like in the south of ukraine and what exactly the ukrainian army would have been facing in terms of the russians and and the russian army well, there's not, not a lot in the way of mountains or anything like that. What you do have in the southern part of Ukraine is a whole lot of river deltas as these you know rivers drain into the, the Black Sea down there. And so, uh, for example, in Mykolaiv, is split, the city is split by a large bay that's part of that river that, that drains out to the sea. Many of the missiles that they've been firing at at Mykolaiv have fallen into that bay rather than hit anything. But uh, yeah, so, the, the, you know, Mykolaiv is larger than Kherson and had much more time to dig in for the time that it took them to capture Kherson, it would have taken much longer than that for them to capture, you know, Mykolaiv if they had tried to do that. And now they they do sort of have Mykolaiv surrounded on uh, three sides because, or well, almost, because they have a, there's a sort of a peninsula that comes out on the water on the south side and goes kind of around Mykolaiv. But that that just keeps them from using Mykolaiv for much in the way of like a port, using the port there a whole lot. But nevertheless, the the shaping operations that they've done in the south, what I, I had a military commander tell me, our plan is not to go head to head with the Russians in the south, at least not right away. What we would rather do is turn it into a self-administering prison camp, POW camp for 20,000 Russian soldiers. And that's essentially what they've done by cutting off all avenues of escape, by all avenues of resupply in, in, on that side. Of the, now they're just starving out the 20,000 Russian troops that are on the western side of the Dnieper, the Dnieper River. And so now they can focus their combat power elsewhere for the time being and basically just bomb any, any Russian attempt to cross the river to get their troops. 
Gotcha. All right. So that's the situation down, down in, the, in the south, somewhat of a, a meat grinder, but also, as you said, it's now a prison camp for tens of thousands of, of Russian soldiers. And there is some level of panic in Kherson, isn't there? I know the Russians said what they wanted to do was have a, a, a kind of a referendum whereby people could vote whether Kherson was going to become a part of the Russian Federation. That has now been cancelled. The Russian backed administration there is feeling somewhat jittery because of the impending Ukrainian offensive, which is probably going to retake that city. But then we need to move up to the north, which is in effect what it says, the bait and switch. So take us back to approximately four or five days ago. What what happened and then what has happened subsequently? Let me just mention one thing about the about Herson. I just am receiving information today on some of the telegram channels that I follow that they're seeing groups of Russian soldiers attempting to surrender en masse down there to to the Ukrainians. And one thing, one other thing that they're seeing is the Russian propaganda posters that have been put up all around Herson talking about the referendum are being torn down in the middle of the night and replaced with lists of names of Ukrainians who have collaborated with the Russians as sort of a very pointed reminder that once we do, once the Ukrainians do retake Kherson, all you Ukrainians who thought you were going to, you know, be friends with the Russians, we're coming for you and it's going to be ugly for them. Okay. Now to the North, go if you want to comment on that, go ahead. But the, to, to the North five days ago, well, this is, really funny. I've been collecting videos, commentary from some of the people that you see on Twitter who are very pro-Russian, Patrick Lancaster and some of those guys that, that you know, all they can do is just spout that, the, the, the Russian propaganda line. And I've been just saving those tweets and those videos and those articles because I would, I'll, I'll be very interested to see what they have to say when Ukraine actually drives Russia out of their country. And there there was actually this quote-unquote expert on the Tucker Carlson show last Friday saying the Ukrainians are, are falling apart in the South. Everything they do is failing. They have no, uh, n- there's no chance that they're going to be able to mount a successful counteroffensive. And of course, here we are five days later, and Ukraine has retaken more ground in the last five days than Russia has taken in the last five months. And, and that's pretty, pretty astonishing. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Kharkiv, let's see. I guess it was a few weeks ago now because I, I went to Estonia on my way out. It's been a couple of days there, so Estonia and Finland. But in, when we went to Kharkiv, a couple of things that were interesting and notable was that driving out there, we, we were, most of the, times that we've been traveling around that country, we leave very, very early in the morning, like two o'clock in the morning, because the traffic is not as bad. And two o'clock in the morning is a very good time to keep from getting, you know, somebody trying to bomb you or something, I guess, is the the thought process. But what I noticed was, as we were driving along, there were these sets of headlights in all the fields going south and going out to the east from from Kiev, and and I'm like, what is that? And I'm trying to figure out why I'm seeing head, headlights spaced out at intervals across these fields. And then I realized they're not they're not cars; they are combines. And the farmers were out harvesting their wheat at two o'clock in the morning. So either they are 
trying very hard to get their wheat harvested and stored away and they have very limited time to do it and so they're just going 24 hours a day or there's some reason why they would want to harvest in the middle of the night rather than the daytime maybe they save fuel or maybe it's not as hot i don't know nevertheless it was surprising to see all the farmers out harvesting at 2:30 in the morning the other thing is that when you when you get into kharkiv of course that city is being again not shelled per se there are some settlements on the outskirts that have been shelled with actual artillery but they were just outside the range of traditional artillery and so but they were inside the the range of rockets and missiles so russia is able even from inside russia to hit kharkiv it's only about 40 kilometers or 45 kilometers i think from the russian border and so every night there were rockets coming in to Kharkiv. The difference, and the, the, one of the reasons why that's so important to make that distinction is because if you talk about being shelled, the Russians have an unlimited amount of artillery and they would pound Kharkiv into dust if they were shelling Kharkiv. But with rockets, they don't have as many. And so they can kind of create damage. But Kharkiv's a city of a million people. So if you're in a city of a million people and they told you that there were a few rockets that were going to fall tonight, you probably wouldn't sleep in your bathtub or your basement. You'd probably figure, well, it's probably not my, you know, they're not going to hit me. And so what few people are left in Kharkiv, they're not sleeping in their basements, but they are ready to go to the basement. We stayed in a hotel right in the center of Kharkiv across from the administration building that had been bombed early in the war, a big glass, you know, premier palace. And I slept. Apparently, there were five rockets that came in several blocks away from where we were sleeping and woke up my cameraman, but I slept right through it for some reason. <laughs> so, <laughs> it did, But it didn't break any of the windows. I figured if the windows bust out of the, of the hotel room, then we'll know that we're in trouble. And other than that, I'm just going to try to get a good night's sleep. So, Chuck, I, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Iris. I'm, I'm Israeli. I've been in the Israeli army for three years in intelligence. I read a lot of what you wrote. I'm following you for a few years. So, yeah. And I'm getting a lot of information from, like, military correspondents who I'm in contact with, like John Spencer and some others. They're talking about the equipment of the Russians, that the maintenance of it is not not very good especially the tanks that are quite old and the, the ones that were used in Syria. So I wanted to, to get your input a little bit about that. And also today I heard about the, the missiles that, that the U Ukrainian army are using in order to attack uh, strategic air defense stuff of the Russians. So I would love to hear your opinion about that, if you may. Okay. As far as the state of the Russian equipment, all the Russian equipment I've seen, thank heaven, has been just, you know, just already destroyed or captured. Ukraine has captured quite a bit of it, and you see it rolling. As you're driving toward Kharkiv, we saw a lot of Russian equipment coming back toward Kiev on flatbeds, uh, painted up with the, with the Ukrainian flag and that sort of thing. Quite a bit, actually. I, I mean, dozens and dozens of tanks and armored vehicles just that one day that we drove out to Kiev. So the the Ukrainians and the Russians essentially have all the same equipment, more or less. It's interesting if you actually count how much has been captured at this point. 
Russia has actually donated more military equipment to Ukraine than the West has. They're the largest, <laughs> they're the largest provider of military equipment to Ukraine now. And the Ukraine is very grateful for that, I'm sure. But the... Just, just on that note, Chuck, because mm -hmm. I did see, I saw, I don't know if it was Twitter or Telegram, but I saw that claim and I just thought that was a neat joke. But is it seriously the case now that the Russians have abandoned or lost that much equipment that it far exceeds what the West has actually given them since the start of the conflict? Yes, except for in terms of ammunition, I think. We, we were given them ammunition back in October. But, I mean, this is according to... Russia, I mean, to Ukrainian sources, if you listen to Russian sources, you have to figure that there's a fudge factor there both directions. The Ukrainians, again, fighting, they, they both realize that the real fight is in the information battle space. And so a, the perception of what's happening on the ground is actually more important in the long run than the actuality of what's happening on the ground. And so Ukraine puts out this list every day of the equipment that they've captured. And it's, you know, they're saying that they've killed 52,000 Russian troops. Uh, Russia claims something similar about Ukraine. And they, if you look at Russian numbers, they've destroyed something like 110 HIMARS units now in Ukraine, which is a pretty good trick since we've only given them 16 units. And the, I think you have to sort of, pick a number in the middle somewhere. There are some open source Intel communities that do their best to try to keep a tally on actual proven captured equipment and destroyed equipment. But suffice it to say that Ukraine has destroyed more Russian armor than has than, than Russians have destroyed Ukrainian armor, and they've captured enough Russian armor to now make them superior in terms of numbers when it comes to tanks on the battlefield in Ukraine. But again, the Ukrainians are not using them as mobile gun platforms. They're using them as artillery, almost exclusively at this point now. Maybe with this counteroffensive, that will change. But that's that's what we hear so far. So just run us through what exactly has happened in, in the last four days in terms of territory captured, recaptured, liberated, so we can get completely up to date. So the most... Recent numbers I've seen today are that Ukraine is claiming to have recaptured about 3,000 square kilometers and is pushing, actually threatening Lysychansk and Severodonetsk again, which was only recently captured from the Ukrainians by the Russians. If that were to take place, it would completely demolish that cauldron, they, they call it, that the Russians had had created around Kramatorsk, that, that three-sided, you know, everybody inside there was just getting pounded to dust. Now, I visited Kramatorsk right about the time that Severodonetsk was falling to the Russians. I visited Slovyansk, which was not far from there, just a little further north out of Kramatorsk. And what I saw that you know, at the time I really couldn't do a lot of reporting on, again, for OPSEC reasons, was just that the the gains that the Russians were making in in terms of taking Severodonetsk and that sort of thing were strategic retreats by Ukraine to better prepared defensive positions with the idea that they would make it increasingly more difficult on the Russians to to come in. Now the Russians are saying that about their retreat. Over the last five days in the north, I know that the Ukrainians have actually made it up to the to the Russian border, 
in the north and have pushed out, have have cut off something. They say 10,000, I would say closer, probably closer to 5,000 Russian troops that are cut off in that area with no communications, limited ammunition and, and supplies. And those guys are, from the reports I'm seeing, putting on civilian clothes and trying to pretend that they're Ukrainians or blend in with the Ukrainian population. So a lot of them are being captured and killed in the process of that. It is devolving into more trench warfare as the Ukrainians push into that. To be fair, they are going up against very poorly trained, like Russian National Guard troops. I've seen some captured equipment and documents online that show that many of those troops are actually young teenagers. I'm talking 16, 17 years old. They have equipment. I'm talking like their medical kits and that sort of thing that is actually, you know, was they're, they're, the bandages were made in the 1950s and 60s. So very old, outdated equipment. And these guys have left behind a tremendous amount of armor and trucks and all that sort of thing. So it would, it'll take some time to get a final tally on how much they've gotten. But I know the Ukrainians are very bolstered by this, this win in the North, and they're hoping that it would create a panic amongst the, the rest of the Russian troops and allow them to, to continue to press the advantage. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You said that before this offensive, you kind of observed the, the Ukrainians retreating, but making strategic retreats. Is it at all possible? Because I look, looked at a map today and the line seemed to have settled around this Oskil River, which runs from Russia to the east of Izium and then, and then seems to kind of like peter out and the battle line seems to have fallen back to there. Is it at all possible? Yes, the Russians have taken pounding, but is it not at all possible that they have actually done a strategic retreat of their own behind this river, which is much more defensible, and that the, the battle lines could well now slow down in terms of the movement that we've seen in the last four days? I think it's highly likely. I think that is, well, 
Now, Russia is saying, well, we were planning to do this all along, and you know, they typically have done this whenever they've lost ground. They've said, well, we're, we're pulling out now as a humanitarian gesture, and, and that's patently ridiculous. If you're pulling out as a humanitarian gesture, you don't leave all your tanks and armor behind and weapons and everything else, and your soldiers, for that matter. Uh, so it's, it's obviously not that, but it certain there, what the Russians are going to be doing now is looking for a defensible line to fall back to. And that's a natural place where they would do that. When I was in Pisky de- delivering all those drones and everything, one of the things I was talking with the Ukrainian airborne troopers about is that one of the reasons they have solidified the lines where they are is because they've essentially nullified the Russian. They've, they've figured out a way to kind of nullify the effects of the Russian armor because they, they held the Russians off as long as they could and you know up around Severodonetsk and Lysychansk and those areas. In the meantime, they were digging very deep, very strong bunker systems behind those lines and they needed to hold the Russians off long enough to get those bunker systems completed. Once they were completed, then they pulled back to those deep bunker systems and took up positions there where the Russians can essentially you know, hit you with artillery all day long and they're not gonna do much to you because you're several meters underground. And as a matter of fact, we spent much of the day while I was out there in a very deep bunker, command bunker, where they were, this is very interesting. They're taking these drones, they're off the shelf Mavic drones, and they have the capability to live stream if the, the operator, the drone operator has a internet connection or a cellular connection, he can live stream what the drone is seeing to places like YouTube or something like that. I've done it myself with my own Mavic drone off the roof of my house. Here in Panama, and so they they set up a Starlink internet receiver, and they connect the drone to it with through the operator, the drone operator. They they set send the drone up and send it out on its you know recon mission, and they live stream what the drone is seeing to a private link on like YouTube, and that they send that link to their command post, which could be. A hundred miles away. It doesn't have to be anywhere near nearby. There are in that command post. There are a whole bunch of kids sitting around looking at large monitors with these different drone feeds on them, and they're analysts and they're looking. They're going, you know, talking via radio with the drone operator and saying, "Hey, go left, go left. Look at the, it. Looks right in that in those trees right there. It looks like I see a a barrel sticking out. What is that? Go closer." And they sort of work with the drone operator to identify targets. Once they do that, they are able to use the drone to get a precise geographic location for the targets. And the the command post then radios those coordinates to the nearest you know gun the near that can hit it whether that whether that's a mortar close range or an artillery piece medium range or a rocket system long medium range or even a high mars if they if they needed to and then one round from that thing once they they get it dialed in can take out that target the other thing to mention is that I, let me think about that yeah, I don't. I don't think this is any, anything secret. But the drones are being used basically as one-time use items. They they 
don't want to take the chance of bringing the drone back to the operator because they, they think the Russians could, could track it. And so they'll typically just use that drone one time. And, and it sounds horribly wasteful until you realize that these drones are like a thousand dollars in the scheme of mil- military warfare. That's nothing. That's like a Kleenex. I think the U S military pays more than that for toilet seats. So, you know, the thousand dollar drone, they send it on a one way trip. It goes out there, it does its thing. And then somewhere out there on the battlefield, there are hundreds of once used drones just laying around waiting for kids to come pick them up at some point. <laughs> So this stunning Ukrainian offensive, which I think started, I think, Friday, Thursday, Friday, seen them go all the way to the Russian border. And there's lots of triumphalist pictures on Telegram and on YouTube with Ukrainian soldiers hoisting flags at recaptured or liberated Ukrainian cities and and with the inhabitants coming out and and hugging them and symbolically going to those border posts and ripping down Russian flags and and putting up Ukrainian ones. But then today, because of this unprecedented success, we've actually now started to see some movement in the south, haven't we, that some cities, some, sorry, some villages to the north of Kherson, and then one actually quite close of actually now being liberated by Ukrainian forces. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that, please, Chuck? Uh, all I've heard is that, uh, you know, it's sort of energized everyone, especially the people that are still stuck in these villages. And those people are getting, they're agitating more for the Russians to leave, whether that's through sabotage or even just vandalism or flyers, psychological operations, that sort of thing. I, I haven't seen a ton about actual movement of Ukrainian forces. I mean, I have heard that the Ukrainian forces have moved in the south. But I haven't been following that as closely as I have the North, so I don't know what fix. Gotcha. All right, so a quick recap. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. So sorry that I went quiet for about a minute, but my internet connection went down in, in sunny London. So I'm actually speaking to you from my phone, from my mobile phone, from its mobile connection. But this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic, where we look at news and the views from around the world. And we, we love it when we have experts, people with real knowledge who can tell us about things from their, from their point of view and how it pertains to the news that uh, the world has greeted that day. And so it's, we're, we're very honoured to have journalist Chuck Holton with us today who can give us a real insight into the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. If you are in the audience, now is the time for you to hold up your hand and come up. You've got a question for Chuck. We'd love to have you up on stage because the, these rooms only last for about an hour. So, so do not sit on your question. We have a man of great repute here. So hold your hand up and we will call you up and you can ask a question. So, so Chuck, one of the things which we, we also also has made the news wires this weekend has been the councillors in St. Petersburg Council who have sent this unprecedented petition saying that Vladimir Putin should be impeached. Should we, what should we read into this? Is this a sign of Russian political implosion, Russian vision in terms of the deprivations that this war has actually caused? Or is this just a maverick of it? So I, I actually spent a couple of days in Tallinn on the way out of Ukraine this trip and did some reporting on the Ukrainians who have gone to Estonia and what Estonia is doing and thereby Europe is doing to help these migrants or uh, refugees 
if you will, and went up to the border, went up to the Russian border where people are crossing back and forth and was actually got a chance to interview half a dozen Russians who had crossed into Estonia for the day of students and people who worked on the other side of the border, that sort of thing. And just asked them, you know, what are things like in Russia right now? They all said that, you know, we're not really seeing huge, you know, lack of anything. We're not seeing, our our lives have not changed appreciably because of this, this war. Now, they may be, you know, they're obviously, they're not in an area near the border. They... I, I did ask them, some of them because they were military age males if they were concerned about conscription and they kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit, but made it clear that yes, they were a little worried about that. And that's one of the reasons why they were in Estonia. We've seen uh, hundreds of thousands of high-tech Russians, people who work in the high-tech industry, leaving Russia because they can't do their business in Russia anymore. And I was able to speak to some of those kind of people in in Estonia. And they all were, they were the ones that I talked to who were vehemently against the war, very upset about what's going on, definitely more sort of self-educated and not just swallowing whatever comes out on Russian state TV. So that was, that was interesting. I was kind of shocked to find that they're not experiencing any real, you know, shortages of Western made goods or anything like that. They said the prices have gone up substantially, but we've seen that around the world. So, you know, I don't know that you can directly blame that on sanctions or anything. It's got to be partially responsible for it. But to be fair, it was kind of surprising that there weren't more. Now, they they did all complain about the checkpoints. They said, you know, you get stopped in some places every hour and some places literally you can see the next checkpoint from the one you're at now. And, and you're getting asked the same questions over and over and over again. And I was like, well, how dumb is it to set up two checkpoints within sight of each other to ask you the same question twice? And they said, well, efficiency is not really a thing in, in Russia. That's not, that not like they really care about saving you any time. So that was uh, just, that's what I heard. Dr. Elizabeth Bailey, welcome to the stage. What is your question? Thank you, Royfeld, and thank you, Iris and Chuck and Greg. This is phenomenal, Chuck. Thank you for taking the time to share your insights. My question is, can you envision Ukraine recapturing Crimea during this time of conflict? I'm complete. So, of course, this is Russia. I mean, Ukraine's stated goal as part of their they're, they they say, hey, the war's not over now until we take all this stuff back. I think they are starting to see that with the help of Western weaponry and, and equipment and stuff like that, that they might actually have a chance to do that. But you have to understand that Crimea is the one, it's the last place that, that Russia would be willing to give up. If they had to give up everything else, they would fight to, to tooth and nail for, for Crimea simply because of Sevastopol, their, their warm water port there. They desperately need that warm water port. And they, they part of this, the whole reason for this invasion comes down to the fact that Crimea was drying up like a raisin because of the canal being blocked in Kherson that supplies Crimean reservoirs with water. On the day the war started, the reservoir in Crimea was down to 7% capacity. 
And if that goes completely dry, Sevastopol is going to be very difficult to, to remain tenable as a, as a military base. And so they desperately needed to take Kherson so that they could reopen that, that canal. Ukraine has since used some of their HIMARS to bomb that canal. So that, that is a big problem. And we could go talk about similar issues with Zaporizhia. But suffice it to say that Russia desperately needs Crimea, and they are uh, that's going to be the toughest fight of all. Thank you, Dr. Elizabeth Beatty, for that excellent question. Greg Sattel, friend of the podcast, do you have a question for Chuck Holton? Chuck, keeping on, following up on Elizabeth's question about Crimea, and of course, you know, you can't separate Crimea from Sevastopol, but have you had any reporting or a sense on what the disposition of is of of the Crimean Tatars? Because, I mean, obviously their leadership is now in, in Kyiv, but would that in any sense be a, a military asset or would they in any sense be a military asset for Ukraine in Crimea in terms of partisans and, of course, help for special forces, which, I mean, I, I think we, we can assume, you know, there's at least a few dozen of those in Crimea at the moment. Do you see the Tatars being any sort of factor in that way or maybe not? I don't know about that. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious from the whole course of this conflict that both Russia and Ukraine have a tremendous amount of human intelligence assets on the ground in in the behind enemy lines let's say either either on the ukrainian side or the russian side now russia from my understanding talking to actually I interviewed a girl from crimea who was in estonia and she said russia has pretty much done its best to replace as many crimeans as possible with people from other parts of russia now they've moved in they've moved them into people's homes you know and and forcibly relocated people out of crimea into other places in order just to do almost the same as what they did in 1933 after the Holodomor, you know, in the final stages of that, as they were realizing, oh, we need people down there, but we don't want Ukrainians there, so we're going to move our own people in. But the the partisan network is very robust in and around Melitopol and in Kherson itself. I actually know a couple of people personally that are that are able to cross the lines between the two, even even across the front lines, that are working as partisans in those areas. And uh, the stories they tell you would will they will make incredible books someday. Can, obviously, can't tell them now, but they, the the things that they, those guys are doing behind enemy lines is absolutely unbelievable. So uh, I think the the true effect or power of those partisans, and as you said, the Tartars has it remains to be seen, or at, at least those who know what effect they're having are not able or willing to tell the story just yet. Thank you for that question. Greg, Azade, you're up next. Uh, hello, everyone. It's uh, Azadeh. I have this question that, as you said, that Russia is running out of soldiers and weaponry, and they are now buying poor quality weapons from countries like Iran. Can you predict how long can they go on with this shortage, like a couple of months or maybe a year? And how Putin, if you know him as a kind of 
like not a normal person how can he face and justifies this loss and because if he's losing then it will be the end of okay so just to be very precise russia is not necessarily running out of troops they're running or, or bodies they're running out of trained troops and they are having a hard time recruiting they are, are always able to mobilize troops they've been doing that a lot in the in the occupied areas mobilizing any military age male and sending them off to the front. It's unfortunate how many of the Russian troops that are being killed right now are untrained, very low quality, very young or, or very old. Some of the airborne troops I talked to in Pisky said, you know, these guys, when they decide to attack us, they just send them in waves and we just machine gun these guys down on the banks of the river. They never have a chance. And then they send another wave and we machine gun those down and they send another wave. They said, uh, at, when I was there, they said in the last three days, we've killed 500 or so Russian troops just on the bank of the river over there. And they just keep sending them. It's, and, and so it's pretty clear that they don't really care. I think, you know, historically, Russia has been willing to sustain very big losses in personnel. They don't care much about their soldiers. Many of the people that they're sending to their deaths are, are people from occupied areas that they've just, you know, conscripted anyway. And and so they could do that for a long, long time. If they ever did go to a general mobilization, it would not be good for Putin's, you know, political career. But if they did that, they, shoot, they could call up 10 million people. And so they could keep, you know, just grinding. One, one Ukrainian airborne soldier said to me, or no, I'm sorry, this is a guy that wrote an article about it, said, that Russia is trying to drown Ukraine in Russian corpses. That that's how they're attempting to win. Just drown us in in their own in bodies of their own soldiers. Now, when it comes to the equipment, they are, the, according to the U.S. intelligence agencies and the U.K. intelligence agencies, they have lost maybe up to a third of their total armor in Ukraine already. That's massive. That's really bad. And they're not able to build new stuff. And so they're trying to obtain more from North Korea or Iran or places like that. These are essentially just uh, the same stuff that they already had. It's probably not in any worse condition than what they had. It was probably not in any better condition either. So, you know, that's that would be sort of a stopgap measure. I think it was Anthony Blinken said the other day that they're attempting to purchase literally millions of rockets and artillery shells and things like that from North Korea, that could definitely be bode poorly for, for Ukraine if they're able to get those. But that may be part of the reason why Ukraine is pushing so hard right now to try to just route the enemy and get them to, to come to the negotiating table, which we heard Lavrov talking, you know, kind of making noises about, you know, having talks, peace talks, for the first time in quite some time. So it may be that 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 is back on the table now. Katrina, you're up next, and then we're going to end with a question from Lou. Katrina. Hi, Chaco. Nice to meet you. My question is, do you think that the war is going to be grinding very slow, you know, pushing the Russian forces out little by little, or things that we have seen like the way it happened around Kiev, where once Russians are starting to feel that they're really getting hammered, you know, they just leave the entire area. The same thing with the Snake Island and the same thing with Kharkiv mm-hmm. area where, 
you are expecting to have this long grinding fight and all of a sudden they just go, okay, that's it, we're leaving the entire area. Do you think it is possible that at one point when Ukraine, you know, will have this shift in power, do you think it's possible that they will just say, that's it, we're leaving? I think it is possible. Uh, obviously, that's that would be a great outcome for the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia. And what we've seen so far, the pattern we've seen is that Russia tries to take a really big bite of Ukraine and it turns out not to be able to to digest it. And so it spits out part and takes a smaller bite and then a smaller bite and then a smaller bite. And it keeps refocusing its forces on a tighter and tighter area and still manages to lose. So other than, again, just a sheer quantity, just trying to drown Ukraine, just trying to grind out. And what there, there's a time factor on both sides here. Ukraine is hoping that Russians will run out of ammunition and run out of the political will to fight. You, Russia is hoping that Ukrainians will run out of support from the West and and heat this winter. So I, I think that the the greater fight in this battle is going to be in the information media battle space and in the energy battle space and not so much on the ground going forward. Again, as I said before, remember what happens in the people's perception is more important than what happens actually on the ground. It actually influences the, the ending of a war more than the actual tactical or, or strategic victories that take place uh, on the ground. So keep your eyes on those. Chuck Holton, is there anything which maybe we've, we've missed out and you think, ah, oh, you know, here's something which I need to tell the good people who are listening in to Mid-Atlantic on Clubhouse? I'm doing a lot of research right now on the power grid in Ukraine. This has been covered sort of in, in some outlets, you know, like Forbes and things like that. Not really so much in the mainstream media, but um, the, the connection between the starting date of the invasion and the, the, that, that happens to be the, the date when Ukraine was transferring its power its station there at Zaporizhia from the Russian grid that it had always been on to the Western, to the European grid. That, that happened four hours before the Russians invaded. And I think there's a much stronger connection between those two events than people realize. As I've talked to some experts in the, the energy field and just about what, number one, how fragile the electric grid is in Russia and how badly they need that uh, that additional capacity of four million you know people because I kept asking like what you know what four million people get the power from Zaporizhia where did they you know where does that power go and these guys are explaining to me well it's not exactly that cut and dry because a lot of the you know the power goes into the grid and then out of the grid everybody gets power but reducing the the overall capacity of the russian grid by 4 million people is uh, could theoretically be a catastrophic event for the russian power grid and could send russian the russian grid back you know to the point where rolling blackouts and and really make it a developing country once again and so it was something that russia just simply could not afford to let happen. And so they had to come up with these other sort of provocations and things to justify their invasion. Now, I've, I'm going to be doing a lot more research on that. And if any of you happen to have any knowledge in that area, 
if anyone listening does, please contact me. I'd be really interested in talking to you about it. So we'll crowdsource some of this research if if we can. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chuck Holton. Thank you for joining us on, on Mid-Atlantic today. You always come, Grace, with not only a lot of knowledge, but a lot of real insight because you've spent time in the battle space in Ukraine prior to the invasion and then during the invasion. So we, so we thank you. Just remind us, Chuck, when are you going to be back out in Ukraine? So right now I'm actually making travel arrangements. I've got a grandbaby due the 1st of October. And then after that, I'm planning to head back over to Ukraine. And other than a trip home for Christmas or you know, that sort of thing, I'll stay at least until the one-year anniversary, I think. We here at Mid-Atlantic are unabashed supporters of the proud nation of Ukraine and for its people to have, to have self-determination and to fight back any aggression that seems to compromise on their independent sovereignty. So that's where we stand with this. But just before we go, if you are in the audience, why don't you hit the little green icon top left on your smartphone and follow the Club Mid-Atlantic. That means that when we have great guests like Chuck, that you will be alerted so you can have a ringside seat for that. And for those who are listening to the podcast, why don't you download the app Clubhouse to your phone? And that means that you then can be part of the live recording of one of these podcasts, which then means that you can then ask a question. You can be part of a future Mid-Atlantic recording. My name is Royfield Brown. Take care, look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.